Sorry, let me get arranged here. So actually, while I do that, if you could open up your Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 3, right to, at the end of it, and I really do encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it up. If you have a smartphone, and I know you do, go ahead and open it up, um, because um, especially at the beginning here, we're going to touch around a few areas of Ephesians, and if you see it with your eyes, I think you'll be especially uh, blessed by it. So I'm going to go there myself. And as I do, um, I want to start by asking you the question is, why are you here? And that's maybe a question you've heard before, but why are you here? And as you know, it's because of the smile on my face. It's kind of a trick question, right? It's a multi-layered question, I guess. So, you know, why are you here in this building at 8, almost 9 o'clock now, at 9 o'clock in the morning? Why are you here? You know, those who are members of this church, why are you a member of this church? Or why are you here in Camarillo, right? How did you end up here? It's an interesting question. And of course, it leads up to the, the ultimate question of why are you here? Why am I here? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why are we on this um, planet? Um, there's kind of an old joke in Sunday school. Yeah, well, I, there's lots of forms of this joke where they say, um, you know, what's the, what's the answer to every question that's being asked in kids' Sunday school, right? The answer is Jesus. You know what the adult version of that is, I think, is what am I made for? Or as the old catechism puts it, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? And what's the adult answer? It's to glorify God. In fact, I've known some of our students who've come through, and you know, whenever the question gets or to be a hard question, like, why would God do this? Why would God do that? Why this? Why that? You know, in the end, if you're really stumped, you say, for his own glory. And you know you got the right answer. But what I want to do today is, starting with um, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 here, is consider what does that really mean? It's such an easy answer to say. It's kind of a glib answer to just say. But what does it mean? We're going to consider, you know, what is the glory of God? What does that mean? How can we um, glorify God? And I hope as we go through this half hour um, that we each get a taste of the glory of God. So let me read Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Beautiful, glorious. Let me pray and we'll see what it means. Father, as we're here to worship you by, um, we've worshiped you in song and we've worshiped you in prayer. And as we worship you by hearing your word, I pray, Father, that you would, you would enliven our hearts, open them up, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that might understand things that we wouldn't even have imagined. Help us to see your glory. I ask that, please, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this is right at the end of a whole chapter. And I guess as Greg said last week, you know, what was the, what's, the, what's the lesson for understanding what you read in the Bible? I guess, what does it go? Three lessons? Now I'm already going to mess it up. But it's context, context, context. And so we're going to spend the first, you know, the first section here, which is titled The Taste of the Glory of God, looking at this. It, Paul here is exclaiming praise to God. We call it a doxology. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power working within us, to him be glory. Why is he so excited? And I think as we get to see why he's so excited, I hope we can be excited and see what God has for us. And so, to understand what's going on here, turn back just a few um, pages, or verses, I should say, to verse 14. Because what this really is, is it's the end of Paul's prayer. Paul, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he goes into a deep, 
prayer, asking for the most glorious things that he could ask for this church, for this reason. For what reason? Well, we got to go farther back. And in this case, we're actually going to go back to the beginning. Um, but I want to take you through um, what enlivens Paul's heart so that he would pray this glorious prayer, which we're going to get to as well, concluding with this marvelous praise to God. And so turn all the way back to chapter 1. And in verse 3, if you were to summarize um, you know, what all the excitement is about, it's really in verse 3. He says, this is chapter 1, Ephesians, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, this is kind of the summary. He has blessed his people in the church with every spiritual blessing. And we're going to see what some of these are. But as your eyes sort of skim through this chapter, see how much it says in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, or because of Christ, and maybe some of those aren't in there. But he is in almost every one of these, these blessings. Okay, so just, just take notice of that. So just to rehearse a few of these things, in verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Right? Marvelous. Why did he, you know, why has he um, chosen us to make us holy and blameless before him? What an exciting thing to think that somebody like me could stand holy and blameless before God. Something to be excited about. Verse uh, 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Imagine that. Adoption. And I guess he'll say this later, but think about what it means to be adopted. You have been taken from something that's not your family, something that's not your home, brought in, in fact, one of the, uh, the stories that comes to mind is the story of David and Mephibosheth, if you know that story, right? But Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul, the son of David's covenant friend, Jonathan. And David is looking, how can I fulfill my promise? How can I, how can I fulfill my promise to Jonathan and, and do good to his family line? And he finds Mephibosheth, who is out in the land of nowhere, hiding, crippled from the legs down due to an accident. He's brought before the king, and rather than, as was the culture of the day, to cut down all of your predecessors, you know, descendants, he is, he is blessed, he is brought to the king's table, and the chap, that whole chapter ends with this account. It says, he, is, he ate at the king's table all his days, and he was lame in both his feet. Is that not me? Is that not us? Right, we're brought, we're adopted, we're heirs with Christ, brought to the king's table, though we're still, as it were, lame in both our feet. Anyway, I must move on. Verse 7, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This gets to the core of it. Where does this come from? We have redemption in his blood. It means that we were bought by the precious blood of Christ. Whatever the cost was for our sin, whatever the cost was for being held in bondage, all of that was completely paid for, redeemed, you know, by the blood of Christ in his riches. Uh, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Um, I couldn't leave this out because think about this. God could have done all of these things without telling us. I guess he could do whatever, I'm sure there's things that he does without telling us. I, it reminds me of when Jesus himself says to his disciples, you know, you've called me master and you're right, but now I call you friends because I'm telling you what I'm doing. Not only does God do marvelous things for us, but he lets us in on it. He reveals himself to us and we get to see him in his glory and, and marvel. I might be getting ahead of myself. Verse 11, um, it says, in him, in Christ, can you see how many in hims there are? Amazing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have in, obtained this inheritance. All things, other, elsewhere it says we are co-heirs with Christ. Whatever 
Jesus Christ inherits, as it were, whatever part he has in God's riches, I share in, you share in. See, verse 13, in him also, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, right? We're, not only all of these things are true, but also we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, or in another place, the Holy Spirit's even called the first fruits, which, like in Old Testament-y terms, is, it's like this promise, the first fruits have come, that's a promise of the harvest to come. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. It's a promise of the glory that awaits. And so the first reason, like leading up to Paul's, for this reason I pray, is, are these amazing riches that we have from God through Christ. But wait, there's more. So I turn to chapter 2, and we'll go through this a little bit more quickly. But in these first few verses of chapter 2, um, what we're seeing here is that was God's grand plan. These are the things that we have, but in these first few verses of chapter 2, we see blessings that we have in the church, a changed life. And we're asked to consider. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Right? You were dead. You were enslaved. You were bound. No hope. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? So we were once dead. Praise God. We were made alive by the power of God. And not only that, we're raised up to what he calls the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus right now is sitting in heaven, in some sense, in some sense we're kind of with him. We're, we're, we're bound to him. We're as sure of heaven as he is sitting there right now. It's hard to understand. There's a, anyway, I'm not going to try to explain it because I just can't right now, <laughs> okay? But it's an amazing thing. That's how sure it is. And finally, for what purpose? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, walk in them. He didn't just save us to get rid of our sin. He didn't just save us so that we would be holy. He didn't just save us so that we would have life. He has even given us good work to do in his name for his purpose, for his glory. We are his workmanship. He's actually laid out a path for each one of us to, to show his good work. We're like, he's like him showing off his, I don't know, something, right? <laughs> Look, mom, what I drew, right? So, and as you can tell, I wish I could just read the whole thing. I'm skipping because I can't. But thirdly, so that's the second thing. The first thing Paul looks at these riches of God that are poured into the church. The second thing is he looks at look, at, look at what has been done in the lives of individuals, death to life. But thirdly, even more amazing, um, is, I guess you could call it a new status. And so look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. And so when he says you Gentiles in the flesh, right, he's contrasting those who were, there were God's people, the Jews, children of Israel, the ones that have had all the covenants, all the promises, these great promises, which I think we're going to see some of them a little bit later, were made to these people. But think about the Ephesians. They're, I don't know, hundreds of miles away. They're mired in the muck of idolatry and whatever's going on in that culture. They've never heard of the true God. They've never seen the true God. They don't know anything about the true God. That's what we're talking about. But here's what happened, the change in status. Therefore, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Um, verse 12, remember that, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promises, having no hope without God in the world. Hopeless, right? It's not just like as an individual that you're dead, but as a whole culture, you are cut off. There's no hope. You don't know the true God. There's no hope that he would even consider reaching out, rescuing you. 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say that Christ himself is our peace. So he's saying, you know, what Christ came and he preached to his people and some people rejected, but his people, some of his people accepted him and grabbed hold of that glory, Paul being one of them. And he reached out to those who were far away, the Gentiles, the Ephesians, and brought them all in together. And if I'm going to skip kind of down a little bit here, it says, verse 18, through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that amazing? Fellow members of the household of God inheriting all of this, and together all of us are being built up into one building, one temple of God. So that's what to get excited about. And so, so verse, um, chapter 3 and verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he interrupts himself one more time, right? Because he's about to, he's like, I think he's about to go into his prayer at this point, but he's like, but, but there's one more thing I've got to say. And he talks about himself. He says, do you realize, look at me. He's kind of saying like, I praise God for you, the church, who's seen these riches. But look at me. He says, if you, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how this mystery was made known to me by revelation, what I'm writing you about, this mystery which is that the Gentiles are coming into the church as well. And the reason why, why is he so, why is he so excited, so kind of amazed that even him, even he is being, um, was used. He says, verse seven, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, um, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. You remember who Paul is? Formerly Saul, the persecutor of the church. He was kind of, see, you know, they used to say he was like the Osama bin Laden of, you know, of the time. Of course, nobody knows who that is anymore, right? But he was like a core persecutor, right? He was the one that everybody was afraid of. If there was somebody who had no hope, it was him. And he says, not only was, did, was, did, did the Lord Jesus knock him off his horse one day and choose him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he's revealing to him these great mysteries so he is amazed. And what was he chosen for? This is the grace that he was given. Um, verse 9, or I guess it's verse 8 still. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, he gets to be part of God's mission, right? Amazing. And then verse 9, and to bring light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in all the ages of God. And then in verse 10, he goes on to say, and this is part of what it is, so that through the church, right? So he, he's amazed that he gets to tell the story. He's amazed he gets to preach to the Gentiles. He's amazed he gets to shed light to everyone who has eyes to see it. What? That in verse 10, that through the church, this manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Right? This is almost like the peak, the goal, the, the, the pinnacle of, of what he is declaring. That the church, through the church would be shown all of God's glory. And we won't dwell on this. Interestingly, he says, so that it might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's almost like we are being put on display so that, um, so that the angels 
and the demons, incidentally, who had been persecuting the Ephesian church for who knows how long, that God would say, these are my people, this is what I've done, this is my wisdom, behold me, basically, right? And so Paul is, and so anyway, all that being said, Paul says, verse 14, we're finally back to where we started. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, right? He is just, at this, like, what do you pray for at this point, right? I, I pray as shallow player, prayers as anyone, right? And usually when I'm not enthralled by the glory of God, it's like, well, God, I don't know, thanks for the food, um, I don't know, help Aunt Mildred with her knee or something like that. What is, and all, all these things, don't get me wrong, we pray for all these things that we need to pray for, right? But what does Paul pr pray for when he has this great sense of glory? That according to the rich of his, this is verse 18, or 16, that according to the rich of his, his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, Give us the strength, but to do what? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, so that we can do what? That you being rooted and grounded in love might have the strength to do what? And here it goes. To comprehend, ooh, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is it that Paul wants more deeply than anything else for his people? That we would know Christ. That we would comprehend his love but not just his love, the height, like the full scope of his love, and not just that, but, but this knowledge that surpasses knowledge somehow, that we would grasp that. And that's what he's praying for. Why? In verse, end of verse 19, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his prayer, right? Imagine that. Not only do we get to grasp it, we kind of see it, we behold it, we, we start to get a hang, hang of it, but the ultimate goal is that we might be filled with the fullness of God it's crazy talk, I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine almost even what that means, but no, and we'll get to it, you know, that, that as we see the glory of God, we are transformed. Anyway, we're going to get to that. Now, this is our text. Verse 20. Now to him. So he's prayed the most amazing prayer. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Right? He has asked a lot. Right? He has asked that we would be filled with the fullness of God, but you know what? He knows that God can fulfill more, far, more than we can think, more than we can imagine, more than we can conceive of. And as I read, like William Hendrickson says, he kind of looks at the verse like this. He says, it's like he's praying this. Okay, God's able to do all that we ask him to do. B, he's able to do even more than of that that we dare not ask, but merely imagine, right? Because you might think of things that you'd like to ask, but it's like, I'm not going to ask. But he can do more than that. He can do even more than that. He can do far more than that. He can do abundantly very much more, far more than that, right? So this same God that provides us these riches, this same God that provoked Paul to pray an amazing prayer, asking for more than we would even really think of, Paul knows that he can ask that, that God is able to do far more abundantly than we could even imagine. So, with verse 20, I hope you get a taste of the glory of God. We haven't really defined it yet, right? And that's what we're going to do next but we catch a glimpse of it. That's the taste of glory, and that's um, what's so exciting. Whenever I read verse 20, that's what should be in our minds, all of this amazing stuff behind it. Okay, so on to the second point here. We've got a taste of the glory, and now, um, what is the glory of God? So when you think of the glory of God, I mean, what are some things that you think of? Like, one thing I think of is, um, well, one is you think of, like, majestic mountains and that, that sort of thing, right? Amazing stuff in creation. Maybe think of, like, the... Uh, you know, the glory, the, the glory cloud that, that led the people of Israel through the wilderness, a cloud by day and a fire at night, and especially when the tabernacle was built, you know, it lit up, right? 
the glory of God is there. And it was so, I don't know, glorious, bright. I don't know the right word for it is that Moses, no one could go in there. It's like everything else is excluded. That's pretty glorious. So they say that the word, like the Hebrew word, you know, carries the idea of weight. So like heaviness, worthiness, reputation, honor. The same kind of idea is, you know, when, um, you know, in Esther, it says King Ahasuerus, he sh at the beginning, it says he showed to all his governors the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp, of his greatness for many days, right? When he was showing off, you know, who's the man? I'm the man, behold my glory, right? That's what a king might say. And in fact, Proverbs, or just a couple examples, Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, but it's his glory to overlook an offense, right? Something that suits you. It's, it's a good quality character, um, that sort of thing. But when we think about heaviness, worthiness, weightiness, right, what's a contrast to that might be shallowness. You know, you could, you could imagine insulting by somebody by kind of saying, like, he's, there's nothing there. All, what do I like saying? All uh, sizzle and no steak? I like that one. Um, but, but, but glory is the opposite. I guess it's all steak. Um, but how do we see the glory of God? And so briefly, um, if you're taking notes, there's really three ways I want to discuss. First, we see the glory of God in creation. Second, we see the glory of God in his revelation. And thirdly, we see it in salvation, his works of salvation. And each one of these is really escalating upwards. So the glory of God in creation, I think we have an idea of what this is. Um, you know, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he said everything was good until the end. He said it was, you know, very good. But he created things, and we know what it's like to see the glory of God. You know, we see these, again, the grandeur of the mountains. I think I always think of mountains, you know, first of all, but glorious natural things, right? And when we see that, and in fact, even as it, as it says, like in Romans, it says, you know, we can look out there and we can see the, um, this, this the power and divine nature of God in looking around. Stuff doesn't just happen. We, these, are, these are amazing things. But one of the things that's kind of excited me over the last number of years, having kids in high school now, you know, I've had to take classes again I haven't taken for a long time, especially like biology and chemistry and physics for that matter, you know? I hated, I didn't, well, hated, I didn't get much out of biology when I was in high school, you know? They say, you, uh, what is it, education is wasted on the youth? Might be true a little, but I think education was wasted on a guy who didn't know the Lord. I think it might be the better, that might be the better way to say it. But when I start to see, like, well, how some of these systems work, I can't see them with my eyes because it's like a fish is a fish, but when they show, like, the different ways that circulatory systems work and the, uh, you know, oxygenated stuff and some of the blood systems, they drop the blood down, and so I don't know how all that stuff works, but it's amazing. You read about it, you hear about it, you see those videos of the models of the DNA opening up and making RNA and making new cells and amazing, glorious. Even for me, I guess you can see where I gravitate, you know? Have you ever seen, you know, the perfect chess problem or the perfect math problem? Some of you know what I mean, right? Or, oh, come on, you know what I mean. Um, or like the beauty of music or, or even like the beauty of a basketball play that is just marvelous, right? Those sorts of things. There is glory in all of those things, and we can see the glory of God in how he has created all of these things. Um, sorry. Bear with me one sec, because there's more glory, but my glory is kind of out of, that's okay. My glory is out of order. Um, but also in creation, it doesn't just mean things that have been made that we're looking at. It also includes things like um, um, we have been given an, an innate, an innate uh, conscience. We know God's law. In fact, again, Romans says that 
that, that the Gentiles, who are even apart from God, even though they don't have God's law, they do God's law. There's a sense in which we know what's right and we know what's wrong, and that's written in our conscience. It's not like a perfect guide, right? Well, if Walter thinks it, then that must be so, right? My conscience is a little bit messed up, but I have a conscience, and that's another sense in which through creation we do see the glory of God. Um, so um, we see the glory of God in creation, and we'll leave it with that. The second place that we see the glory of God is in his revelation. This is like a level up from the level of creation. Like we see the glory of God in creation, but let me put it kind of like this. We can't know another person, really. Like you can't know me in my head, in my heart, unless I reveal myself to you. You know, if I were to meet some celebrity, I don't know what's a good celebrity, you know, like Tom Hanks or something, right? Something, someone everybody knows. If I were to say like, I know Tom Hanks, you know, the natural reaction that somebody would ask me is, what's he like, right? Because you, know, you, you don't really know somebody by just seeing him from the outside. You can see his works, you can see some of his words, but you don't know him unless he reveals himself to you. And there is real, true, kind of amazing glory in God's revelation um, to us. Oh, I see what happened. Um, so bear with me one sec. Think about what we wouldn't know if we didn't have, you know, this book, if we didn't have the Bible. Think first of all, there's some kind of obvious things, right? But think first of all even about things like, um, things like, um, well, we, we know God's revelation in history, right? So we know about what happened in history, in biblical history in particular, and we can figure out some, we can see history however historians do it. But just think of how God's character is revealed in history to some degree. So for example, God called Abraham, and what do we learn from that? God called Abraham out of his country, made great promise to him, said, you know, um, he, he called him out, he said um, he would make a great nation out of him, bless him, make him great. But what we learn about that is we learn that God really is faithful. It's, it's, I mean, if you think about it, the pages, you can read it in 10 minutes, right? But Abraham's life, well, it started at 75, well, not his life, but in the Bible, and then over, I don't know, 25, 40, 50 years is the story of Abraham, starting from a man who just has this glimmer of an idea of who God is, but follows him, and God keeps calling him back, and as, as Abraham stumbles, God calls him back again, makes him more promises, um, and, and in fact, he, he, and so God is faithful not only to keep his promises to Abraham, which we see to Abraham himself, and also to his posterity, but also um, to grow, he's faithful to grow Abraham. When he first, when Abraham first started his walk, he was afraid, just like we're all afraid of things, but by the end, 30, 40, 50 years later, whenever it came time when God said, Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him to me as a sacrifice, Abraham was prepared to do that. It's an amazing thing how God took these many years to prepare him for this incredible act of faith. But also, you know, you can think of um, how God worked in Egypt when he rescued his people. Why did God do that? In fact, it was amazing. One of the things I love about that story is how God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. And God says, I'm going to make a distinction. So you can see, this isn't just stuff that's happening, right? I am making a distinction between my people and you guys. And he says explicitly, I am doing this to um, really to show my power and so that my name will go out through all the nations. And you find out as they go into Canaan that his name really had gone out into all the nations. We see God's glory in Revelation through his law. I mentioned we have consciences, but the consciences are so-so, right? But in God's law, there really is glory even in his law. 
um, when you read, say, the Ten Commandments, and you read it with, you know, through eyes of faith, repentant, forgiven people, right, there is glory in there. Um, we see what perfect justice looks like. We see what perfect righteousness looks like. In fact, in one, just one aspect, I could have chosen one of any. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, this is just one of the many laws, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in any connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. But can you see the glory in that, right? It, it, it God, it's showing that God values protecting the innocent. In fact, he might value protecting the innocent, or not protecting the innocent, against false accusation. It shows that God, God is so concerned about the, um, about the right application of justice that, that he, is, he's put, you know, he puts a law like this. It says something about his goodness and his fairness. Um, we see God's aversion to condemning the innocent. It, we see how important witnesses are and getting things right, essentially. The point is this, is you can go through the laws and you can marvel at God's, um, at God's law. It is justice and his righteousness. Um, but really, here's where, with, with regards to Revelation, one of the things that it tell, the Bible tells us that we would never get otherwise is at the heart of God. Like I say, we can't really know the heart of somebody unless he tells us, right? Um, and what I want to do is read through just a few parts, especially the prophets. So in the prophets, we really get a look at God's heart like almost nowhere else, maybe a little bit in the Psalms. Of course, first of all, um, we, know that we know the famous account of what Moses said when he was interceding for his people in Exodus. This is in Exodus 34. You know, show me your glory. And God said, well, you know, he said, I will, I will do this to some degree. I'm going to pass by of you, and I'm going to declare my name. And so if God's going to show the maximum amount of glory that Moses can handle, what does he say? He walks by. He doesn't actually just show, like, brilliant glory, right? It's not that kind of glory. It's his character. It says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and so on. Right? When he was going to declare his glory, his mercy, his compassion, his long-suffering, his patience. A few other examples. I just want to, I'm going to read and not comment too much, but just to show the, the, a few examples of the heart of God really bursting forth in a way that might be unexpected to people who aren't um, used to it. Isaiah 43, 1-4 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give you Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you and people in exchange for your life. God loves his people. Isaiah 54, 4-8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your um, widowhood you will remember no more. So after God has said, like, you have turned away from my covenant, he's, he's bringing them back. For your maker is your husband. 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved of spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In, um, in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Right? These are some of these emotions of God, you could say, that we wouldn't know if we just looked around. When someone just looks up at the heavens and the heavens declare the handiwork of God, do you know that he's a God of compassion? Do you know that he's a God that, that loves his people like a, a good husband would love his wife? Time's getting away. I'm making decisions. Um, so I'm going to turn to Zephaniah 3. This, is, this one might sound a little bit familiar when I get to it, but this is a remarkable passage, again, near the end of Zephaniah. It says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jer Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and he's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, in your, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will, he will exult over you with loud singing. Picture that. Picture that, a God who exults over his own people with such joy. He's singing. Again, this is what we wouldn't know if we didn't have it revealed to us. And time fails me to go into, you know, how Jesus is the perfect image of all of this. Think of the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself is the perfect image of God the Father, where, like, when he heals, when he heals the lady, he says, take heart, daughter, you know. And he says, your faith has made you well. Or, um, you know, famously when Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he, he shows his heart to his people. When he, was, when he confronted, the, you know, the so-called rich young ruler who said, Lord, what must I do? You know, I've, what I've got to do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's like, oh, yeah, I got that. And then Jesus, and then Mark's gospel, it says, and Jesus loved him. And he went on and in a sense rebuked him, but his heart is never toward casting off. His heart is toward uh, bringing in. So I just want to, as we close that section about Revelation, don't ever get hung up on what you can learn by God's revelation and creation, or I should say by God's glory. By what you see in creation does not trump what you know about God and his revelation. Circumstances are kind of a creation thing. If God doesn't tell you what's going on, you can't know what's going on. And all, many people here can testify that after you've gone through a dark day, a dry period, a time when you wonder, is God there, in a sense, God brings his people through that. We've got to trust in the character of God, not in the circumstances. We've got to trust in the mercy of God that we learn from his revelation, and not just in what we see about what God did to create billions of galaxies and billions of stars. So the last thing um, is we see God's glory in salvation. Okay, so salvation brings together all of these great attributes of God into one thing that nobody um, would have imagined. It's in the salvation of sinners where God's glory is most glorious. It's put on full display, right? This is kind of some of the stuff that Paul's getting excited about in these other parts of Ephesians. And what is, what is this salvation? It's that when the time was right, in the fullness of time, as it says, God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world and so Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, came into the world. The people were waiting and waiting for, for someone, and Jesus comes into the world. And as you know, he grew up, big family, brothers and sisters, and yet did not sin. 
He was like us in all these ways, but yet he did not sin. Um, you know, he showed perfect compassion, the same compassion that God the Father reveals to us in his scripture. He showed to real living flesh and blood people kind of in the flesh. He taught the people, it says, like no one else had that kind of authority. Jesus taught because he said, I speak the words that God the Father told me to say. Um, he did many signs. In fact, John concludes his gospel by saying, you know, these are signs, like Jesus did many signs before his, his, um, his disciples, in the presence of his disciples. I couldn't write them all down, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing in him, you would have life, right? So Jesus did all these signs, and then finally, when the time was right, he gave up his life. And it's amazing that even as he was giving up his life, um, he laid down his life for his people, you know, it was activated by a plot from hell, in a sense, right, that says that Satan himself entered into Judas. He was betrayed by a friend. He was given over to the executioners by a, I don't know, a politically compromised governor. But with, throughout all those things, he gave up his life for his people. When he suffered and died on the cross, he died. He absorbed the wrath of God into him instead of me, took my place, took the place of all his people who trust in him. He, was, he died he was buried, and he rose again, and he has given instructions to his church. He's, so he's calling this, this, um, this church together. And so it, it's an, um, the salvation through Jesus is one of these things that we can ponder for a lifetime and never really get our, our, um, our arms wrapped around it. Paul said that if those rulers and authorities that plotted this thing knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified him. But God's wisdom was beyond that. They didn't know. So, um, and, and also, like Peter says, that like this, these are, this kind of salvation is so, it was like a blind spot to the angels. They couldn't imagine how God could be gracious in this way, but yet God did it. And so all of these sort of loose ends all come together in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So how do we see God's glory, or what is God's glory, right? It's, it's all these good things about God, the manifold perfections, glories of God, but we see it in God's creation, of course, right? Marvel at God's creation. We see it in his revelation, and we see it in, um, and we see it mostly in salvation and what comes out of that. Okay, so for the third point, which we're going to do in the next two minutes, um, I want you to consider, so how do we glorify God? So let me read our verse again here, right? So at the end of the doxology, this praise, it says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, right? That's, that's kind of the verse. To him be the glory in the church. So what is God's glory? We've talked about that. How can we do that? And I want to give you three ways, and we'll be brief with these, but three ways that, um, that we give glory in the church. And the first thing is, is we just behold the glory of God. Behold the glory of God. And behold is just kind of, it's, in one sense, it's a fancy word for like, see it, right? But it's kind of more than that, right? Because like when John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? It's not just like, check it out. It's like, look at that. Look at him. Behold right? Or, you know, when Pilate brought Jesus and said, behold the man, right? It's not just like, there he is, it's, here he is. Behold, perceive. Not just a casual glance, but behold. And so when we see the glory of God, we've talked about how we do this, but, but here's where I'm going to kind of make some application, right? So the first thing we want to do is we want to behold God's glory. You've got to see it. You've got to look for it. Some of it you might just stumble across, right? But what I want to encourage you is, you know, sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible and I get it, or sometimes I pray and I, I really feel like I'm really praying, and I want to hold on to that glory. So we got to 
you gotta work for it. You gotta, gotta read the book, right? If you, wanna, if you wanna see God in creation, study God in creation. I think it's a great thing to study like the biology or electromagnetism or I keep saying nerdy things, but whatever you like to study, study those things and see the glory of God in them. But study the word of God. His greater revelation is in this word and that spirit within you will teach you and, and you kind of, that glory wells up inside. I don't know how to say it. Um, comprehend what God has done for us through Christ in salvation. That's beholding the glory of God, seeing the glory of God. And when we see it and when we delight in that, that gives God pleasure, that gives him glory. So the second thing would be um, praising, praising God's glory. And now this, this is maybe a little bit of a similar thing, but um, it was C.S. Lewis who pointed this kind of thing out, that why do we praise, why do we praise, one, why do we praise things that are glorious? Or think about it like this. Um, if you see a brilliant rainbow, if I'm at home, I, see, I look outside, there's a brilliant rainbow out there. I look at it and I go, wow, that's amazing, right? And what's the next thing I do? I run inside, I grab someone and say, look at that, right? Because this, this was the insight that Lewis had was, it's almost like your joy isn't complete until you get to say it, until you get to share it. You know what I mean? In fact, you know the disappointment of when you want to share something and the other person is like, doesn't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when you can see something and you can praise it with somebody else, there's, it makes your joy complete, and so it makes your joy in the glory of God complete. And so that's one of the things that we do here together. We can praise God alone. We can behold his glory. We can praise God to a friend, which, is, which I would encourage all of us to do. But, um, but when we come together on a Sunday, God has given us a time where we get to meet with dozens of people. We get to sing together. I love hearing the, you know, the songs in the back. It's fun sitting in the front because you can hear it all coming from, come from the back. Um, we praise God, and it makes our joy complete, and as our joy becomes more complete in God, it brings him glory. And then finally, the last thing is that we get to participate in God's glory. And this is one of the things we mentioned earlier reading through Ephesians, but it's a remarkable thing that God doesn't just save us so that we're, like, not going to be punished anymore. He saves us to join in the family. Okay, the first thing is, is we're no longer on the outside. As a kid, I always kind of felt like I was on the outside of things. I always wanted to be on the inside or being like at a party or some kind of get-together where it's like, those people are the ones that know each other. I'm kind of looking in from outside. But now we are brought near, right? We are one group. And I know even in a group, we have these feelings of inside and outside, but I want to encourage you. We are one. Um, we are on, kind of on the inside in a sense. We're all at God's table, God's family. But also we get to participate in his mission, um, you know? The Lord himself, you know, said, go, into, go make disciples in all the nations, and so on. There's that. There's whenever we, you know, the Lord says, when you do something for someone else, and you give a cup of cold water or whatever, you are doing it for me, right? We have a chance to glorify God in participating in this glory. As we behold, as it says, as we behold his glory, we are transformed from one stage of glory to another. Um, and so we get to participate in the glory that way. So, to finish the verse here, he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And for this all generations forever and ever, amen, understand that we have started this now. I encourage you, even now, pursue God's glory in all of these different ways because that is the greatest joy that you're going to find. It's what you were made for, to give glory and praise to God, the one who is worthy of it. And it's in our giving praise to God, in our delighting in God, that he is glorified, that he looks great. He gets to show off a church that is delighting in him, that shows his wisdom and his glory and all that. It's hard to put into words, right? But, but you know what I'm talking about. But we get to do this not only now, but is 
Matt mentioned with um, John Eaton going into glory now, we are going to continue forever and ever knowing the love of Christ more and more. It surpasses knowledge and that infinite love I don't think we're going to ever comprehend even as time, as time goes on. So I want to close with a quote which is from the end of, at the end of each chapter in his book, The Pursuit of God, um, A.W. Tozer has a, a prayer. And I'm going to close by reading this prayer, and we'll sing. The prayer is this, O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. And let me pray, and we'll close. Father, I do pray that each one of us here, that you would kindle in our hearts a desire to know you, because it's by knowing you that we get ultimate um, delight and ultimate glory. It's in chasing after the true joy of knowing you, that we turn our backs on the lesser delights of sin and things that are just kind of worthless. So, Father, as we have um, turn our hearts towards you, um, take away the veil through Jesus Christ. For anybody who is not here, who doesn't uh, know Christ, who doesn't have a faith in the one Jesus Christ who can save, would you please grant them that faith that they would believe that he is, that he is the one who is able to, that is strong enough to, and that is willing to save. And, Father, for, um, for those who do know you, Father, Again, give us this desire. Help us um, to be like the psalmist who pants um, out of thirst for you. So, Father, help us with all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.